Hey everybody, Dave here. Before we get into our talk about Silent Hill 2, I want to issue a content warning. Now this content warning is also at the beginning of the spoiler section, but then I realized, hey, if someone listens to the no spoiler part and decides that they want to play Silent Hill 2, I think they should know that this game deals with some very heavy themes. Themes that I think that the game handles very well for the most part, which we'll talk about in the spoiler section, but those themes include sexual assault and child abuse and sexual assault on a uh, minor, suicide, a loved one with a terminal illness, eating disorders, and animal abuse. Now, not all of those things feature heavily in the story. Most of them actually don't, but they are referenced and some of them are big, big themes and big, big plot drivers in the story. So I do want everyone to know about that before you play this game or before you listen to the spoiler section. So with that being said, Silent Hill 2. Hey everybody, my name is Dave Jackson and this is Tales from the Backlog, a video games podcast where I bring in guests to talk about the games that I've played recently. My guest today is a friend of the show and Endless Fog enthusiast, James Locamp. Hey James. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Today we'll be talking about Silent Hill 2, which is a survival horror game developed by Team Silent and published by Konami in 2001, 20 years ago, with an HD re-release in 2012. But before we get into Silent Hill 2, other than that, have you been playing any games recently or uh, any other media you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of... I I try really hard to try and like focus down on one game at a time, but I've been a little bit scattered lately. So I've been playing back through the uh, the PSP version of Persona 3, uh, which is cool, because I've played like the first 20 hours of that game multiple times and then stopped for whatever reason. So, But I've, I'm playing it on the PS Vita, which means I'm only basically playing it to and from work, which tends to cut down on the sort of repetitive nature of JRPGs for me, because you're doing sure, it in yeah. smaller sittings. Mm-hmm. So that's been fun. Um, other than that, I also recently played through Killer7 for the first time, which was a, a very interesting experience. Uh, mechanically, I think it's probably not that great, but in, in terms of uh, just being weird and out there and and sort of an interesting distillation of like suda 51's game aesthetic uh it's really fun 
Cool. Yeah, Killer Seven and Suda Fifty One are things that I've like osmosed as things that are related to video games, but I've never. I don't think I've ever <laughs> played a game by him. I think it's one guy, right? And yeah, I I've never definitely never played Killer Seven. So what kind of game is that? Uh, so it's like it's like a cross between a rails shooter like an arcade style rails shooter and like an adventure game so the the levels are like split out into missions where you're playing as characters that are part of an assassination syndicate um but the gameplay of it is you're either like moving forward or backward essentially in in 3D environments uh, enemies will be positioned around the world you have to like stop and aim and shoot them. Uh, but there are also these like adventure game style puzzles where you're picking up, uh, like items and interacting with them that way and unlocking progression that way. Okay. Sounds like a interesting mix, like two types of things that aren't normally put in the same kind of game. Yeah, it's definitely, it is unique. Um, but like I said, I think the really standout part of it is like the the visual design of it and he seems to have a knack for sort of aping almost like David Lynch style just sort of weird characters having conversations that don't necessarily seem like they connect to each other or you know that that's sort of like art house style. Ah, uh, gotcha. I'm looking at some like uh, screenshots of gameplay here and the art style looks super unique too yeah yeah it uh yeah it has a really cool like high contrast cell shaded kind of style to it the way that i played it is they released a, a port on steam uh in 2018 i want to say which makes the game like a lot more playable because previously it was a console game so you're having to do uh aiming and if i remember correctly when i tried playing it on the console originally it has a fixed control scheme with inverted uh up and down aiming which always throws me off in games it's not my preferred oh, yeah. thing so i always yeah really, me either really hard yeah a really hard uh time playing it that way but on the pc you're you're doing like moving with the keyboard and then aiming with the mouse, which makes it a lot more playable. That looks, uh, yeah, that seems interesting. And like, if it's a, if it's a game that was released in 2005 and hasn't been like, you know, HD'd since then for steam, <laughs> I think like my PC could actually run this. This might be something that I want to look mm -hmm. into. It looks super cool. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's a unique experience for sure. Cool. Yeah. I mean, if you tell me a game is a unique experience uh, and like it has uh, that art style and stuff like that, yeah, I'll give it a shot as long Ooh. as, uh, like I said, as long as my PC can run it. <laughs> cool. Um, um, and then, oh, oh no, we oh, did go the ahead. thing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then okay. the only other thing that I've uh, mostly been playing is... Uh, I was just looking around on what's available on PS now, uh, right now, and I noticed that the, they made a 
console version of uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker, which is a CRPG set in the Pathfinder setting, which is like D&D adjacent. Right. And I'm always interested to see um, games that feel like specifically tailored to a PC experience sort of adapted into working with a controller um, mm-hmm. because it usually doesn't work <laughs> or at least it took, it took developers a really long time to be able to figure out good ways to like map all that stuff onto controllers and still have it play well. Um, right. So I've been poking around at that a little bit um, and that's been fun. And the uh, the control scheme is working out okay with the controller there? It is working okay. I I would still say it's probably better to just play on the PC if you can, but the controls aren't too bad, and the battle system is either that, like, uh, what do they call it? Like, pause and play, or, or whatever that, like, CRPGs were for a very long time, but they also have a uh, turn-based mode, which I feel like works a lot better on the console. And actually is kind of my preferred way to play CRPGs now, I'm finding. It makes the game a lot, like battle sections, a lot more digestible. Uh, Oftentimes I find in those kinds of games, I... Like, at the low levels, it's easy to manage, but once your characters get up into the higher levels and they have a lot of, like, abilities and spells, it's hard to micromanage on your own. So if you're only dealing Mm -hmm. with one character's turn at a time, then it becomes a lot easier to to deal with. Yeah, I totally agree. The, that, I, I really can't, I have a really hard time playing uh, CRPGs that have that real time with pause because I mm-hmm. I feel like I'm pausing every second to change something as soon as someone fires off a spell pause queue up the next thing and like I, I played a couple hours of oh Pillars of Eternity that's the one on uh, on PlayStation actually mm-hmm. and that one that one was pretty good with a controller but the battle system was just it was unbearable after a couple hours once you start getting you know actual stuff to do in the battle so i'm with you it's turn-based all the way for me and i've also found that a lot of those like crpg console ports that have been put on in the last like five years have all been pretty good to play with a controller that's how i play most of them because of my aforementioned pc that can't run a lot of the newer stuff like (laughs) divinity original sin and Oh, Disco Elysium and stuff like that. They're all they're all working real well on the controllers for me. Nice. Yeah. So, what do you say we get into Silent Hill 2? Let's do it. Silent Hill 2, for everyone listening, if you haven't played it, 
Silent Hill 2 has a story that I think is absolutely worth experiencing for yourself with as little spoiling as possible. So we're going to have a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the show, but then there will be a spoiler wall after which we'll uh, have all of the detailed story talk and stuff like that. So please tap out at that spoiler wall if you don't want to be spoiled. If you ever think that you're going to play this game, I recommend stopping at that spoiler wall and playing it. We mentioned PS Now, and the Silent Hill like HD collection is on PS Now. If you have that, you can stream the PS3 version of it. And so just uh, just a tip for everybody. I know that it's like kind of hard to get a hold of the game if you don't have a PS2 anymore. Maybe we'll talk about that. So let's get into our histories with Silent Hill 2. Like what brought us to this? When did we play it for the first time? Like maybe our history with the survival horror genre. So guests always go first. James, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, so I actually, like I played, well, probably not when it came out, but I, I definitely have early memories of like, going over to a friend's house and watching them play it. Um, no spoilers, but the, the scene at the end where Angela's walking up the stairs in the hotel, like very vividly sticks out in my mind as something I remember from that time. But mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't really have a big uh, catalog with survival horror games in general um, until much later in my life. Uh, and I came back to this, game specifically because it's kind of held up in the franchise as being one of the high watermarks of it and yeah i i mean like i really enjoyed it when i played it through that time uh, this last time was also a very enjoyable revisit for me so how did you play how did you play it again when you replayed it um before coming on the show here uh at that time, I would have played it on the on the PS2. I actually still have a copy of it. <laughs> oh, right on. Very good. Do you still have like an old ass TV to uh, to get the PS2 plugged into? No, unfortunately, I have uh, I have component cables, which kind of are like are marginally better than whatever composite cables. I think are the other ones, uh, mm-hmm. but not like hugely so unfortunately uh my ps2 mostly just sits on my uh entertainment stand and collects dust but it is still there (laughs) it's like a nice talking point if someone comes over to the house whoa shit that's a a real ps2 still kicking yeah that's true um and uh for me oh i forgot to ask you have you played the other games in the silent hill series before I have actually. I've played all of them except for Downpour. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So for me, um, I've never played a survival horror game at all. I've never played any Resident Evil, never played any Silent Hill, nothing in the genre except for if you... Like I looked on Wikipedia and they called Soma a survival horror game, but it's a totally different type of game oh, than interesting. this. Yeah. So I've never played a survival horror game before playing Silent Hill 2 because I hate horror. I don't like being scared at all. So I 
obviously was like, oh, Silent Hill 2, people say that's one of the scariest games ever. I will obviously never play that. But uh, like (laughs) I said, I played Soma and Soma didn't have any jump scares. So I was able to make it through Soma. And that got me thinking like the story in Soma was fucking great. I've heard Silent Hill 2 has a great story too. Let me get on the old like Google search, does Silent Hill 2 have jump scares? And people said (laughs) no. So I was like, oh, cool. Maybe I can do this. So I decided to give it a shot. Like I said before, I played it on PS Now with the like PS5 streaming on a 4K TV. It looks pretty bad that way, but it's already kind of a grainy game. And I think that kind of added a little bit to it, I think. So that's how I played it. If you asked me six months ago, Dave, would you have ever, will you ever play Silent Hill? I would have said absolutely the fuck not, but I'm glad I gave it a shot. Nice. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's kind of get into the kind of mechanics and stuff and what makes this game stand out. So we're going to start with the story. We are not going to go into any spoilers here beyond, you know, the first like five minutes, the setup for what uh, you're doing in the story. So you're playing as the main character named James Sunderland. And I did not realize until I was putting notes together that the main character of the game and the guest on today's show both have the same name. So (laughs) um, (laughs) you're playing as James Sunderland, who receives a letter from his wife, Mary, telling him to go to their special place in the town of Silent Hill, which is in Maine. As James, you're exploring the town looking for Mary. You meet other people and you are tormented by monsters. So uh, without spoilers, just real quick, James, how would you rate this story to like somebody who's never played it before? I mean... I I definitely think it earns its reputation as far as like story and narrative goes. Um, And actually it was interesting on this replay. I felt, I don't know if it's now that I have more prior knowledge of the, the series in general, or if I'm just older and my brain is capable of uh, making more intuitive leaps or whatever. But I, I remember on my initial playthrough, uh, feeling like the story isn't very well articulated in the game. And actually, like this time when I replayed it, that doesn't really seem to be the case. It's actually surprisingly clear about the important parts of the narrative as you go through it, even if it does like spend a lot of time sort of obfuscating that. Yeah. I'm somebody who, like, when I play games, I don't really think deeply about the story while I'm playing it. And as a result, I tend to lose details or miss details. I'm very much like a just soak it all in type of person. It's why I've played Dark Souls three or four times and I still couldn't tell you exactly the story of that game. Um, So I need a little bit of help to understand the story, which uh, is fine. But I do agree that like the general story of it and what's happening is pretty uh, coherently told here. And something cool that I looked up when I was doing a little bit of research is the developers said that they basically wrote the story first in this game and then designed the levels and the encounters and stuff like that, as opposed to like the opposite, the way you might think 
uh, a lot of games would be like, we want to make cool levels and boss fights and stuff like that, and we'll make the story fit that. They did the opposite. So I thought that was very cool. And it's kind of obvious when you play it because the story is really, really like, there's a lot to dig into here and everything serves a purpose. Yeah, I think that's one of the huge draws for me, uh, at least in the earlier games in the series in general, is it feels very much like there was an intentionality of design that you don't necessarily see in a lot of other games. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about it as we go along, but every part of the game that could create atmosphere and like make you think about the game is utilized in the game. Exactly. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, this game does benefit a lot from a replay. Like even like if you just finish the game and immediately restart it, things will make like a lot of sense and you'll realize there's a lot of uh, foreshadowing and you'll you'll realize like things that seemed like kind of random early in the game all serve a, a very specific purpose for this story to be told. It's it's very very cool. Yeah, definitely. So, as a horror game, let's kind of talk about how this game creates fear. So, like I said earlier, this game does not have any jump scares really at all. I am hypersensitive to jump scares and I never really felt uh I never really had that like oh shit moment. There uh-huh. were a couple times where things like you turn a corner and something's there, but it's never something jumping at the screen at you, which I greatly appreciate. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I mean I'm I'm no uh I'm no movie maker nor game designer, but I, I often feel like uh the jump scare is kind of I mean, like, it has its pur- purpose in terms of, like, building temp- tension and releasing it, but I think it's oftentimes used as a cheap way to instill a sense of, like, dread or terror um, in a in a person, in the person experiencing the media. Whereas this one, this game is really all about, like, a pervasive sort of sense and and feel of dread as you move through the game. And it, and it, does release that tension but in specifically different ways than a jump scare so since silent hill 2 doesn't rely on jump scares to scare you we're going to talk about what it does do to build that fear so the first thing i want to talk about is the sound in this game so james if i ask you like what comes to mind when you think of the sound in silent hill 2 what would you tell the listeners I mean, there the composer does a really good job of um, just creating sort of like weird ambient sounds. Um, there's a lot of use of like sort of industrial sounds, like like clanging and machinery uh, that's used in more sort of tense moments. But um, a lot of the design is seems to be focused around. Uh, sort of contrasting really calm, like beautiful actual musical compositions with the sort of stark difference in the music or sound that happens out like during the actual gameplay. Yeah, totally agree. The 
like when you're walking around, you'll hear all of this like kind of unnatural droning in the background. And like you said, machine sounds, you hear things screaming that you never see kind of like animal sounds and stuff like that. And then when you get into like a story cutscene, you get these beautiful piano pieces that mm-hmm. like, like you said, they're, they're a great contrast with the kind of ambient music in the game. And I've like, this is one of my tests for like, does a game soundtrack really like make an impression on me? And I've been listening to this soundtrack a lot outside of actually playing the game, especially those piano sounds. Or if I want to, you know, be annoying or something, I'll throw on those like big industrial metal boss tracks <laughs> from the game. Uh-huh. <laughs> and one other thing with the sound is the uh, the radio that you pick up really early in the game. You pick up a radio, and when you're near an enemy, it sends off like this intense radio static or feedback when you're near an enemy. Sometimes that feedback will go off when you can't see an enemy, so that's a good like dual purpose. It makes you a little bit tense, but also it lets you know there's something nearby. So like again, they're not trying to have enemies jump through doors and scare you. You know when you're near something. Sometimes you don't know where it is, so you get tense because of that, but the radio is very cool. Yeah, and also uh on the point of like hearing enemies one of the things i definitely noticed this time around is like actually enemies are surprisingly noisy um they'll usually make sounds if you're near them it it seemed like there were groups of enemies or maybe specific enemies that have like an ambient sound associated with them i noticed specifically the um whatever the bug enemies are supposed to be uh those sound a lot like I don't know, like a bicycle or something, but it's something you can hear oftentimes before you even see them. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of the enemy sounds are really gross too, which adds to the kind of like, oh, that just, you know, that just overall scary soundtrack. Things sound the way that they shouldn't sound. It makes you feel uneasy about it. So yeah, that's a good point. The next thing that kind of plays into the fear of the game is the camera in my opinion Um, this is a game where when you enter a room there's a fixed camera angle and you can oh on the PS5 it was like hold maybe L2 or R2 to like put the camera behind you but when you go into a room it's a fixed perspective so it's always changing these angles to like highlight parts of the room that they want you to see but it also takes a bit of control away from you. And that kind of gives me a sense of dread as well, because whatever angle they're showing you, you can't see what is, you know, outside of camera view. And it's a little bit of a pain in the ass to switch the camera view, but I always did it because I was like, oh shit, what's behind me now? (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, like, I don't know, some some of the more enclosed spaces, uh, not rooms, but like hallways usually, I felt like switching the camera around behind you was kind of annoying to me, just because it it doesn't like, 
it's not like a quick change of perspective. The camera does this weird sort of like swooping turning motion. <laughs> yeah, um, it does. <laughs> but but overall, I found like, again, on replay, I was really surprised by just how cinematically placed the camera is in those in those fixed camera positions. You know, a lot of times there will be times where your character is like shot from the ground or like at a side view or like through a grate instead of just mm-hmm. being that sort of classic in the in the corner of the room camera and like with the hallways you get a lot of hallways where the camera's in front of your character and so you're running toward the camera and you know it's like it's not like crash bandicoot where you're running from something <laughs> behind you they're just i think they're just doing that to make you feel weird about like the situation oftentimes there's actually enemies in front of you you're running toward enemies and the only way you know it is cuz your radio starts going crazy yeah definitely and the next thing we uh we mentioned the fog and how much james loves the fog but in this game, there are very few, like there's lots of indoor places, but when you're outside, there are very few, or maybe there's no places where it's like clear skies or like long visibility. I, that's what I want to say. Because there's always this fog or total darkness, which, I mean, it's the same thing as like the camera. You can't really see what's around you until you actually walk over close to it. So the fog will dissipate a little bit. And I think that like i the fog is a a silent hill thing right in all of the games yeah and you know this is a kind of a well-known fact at this point but i think the story behind the fog is really interesting because it was originally conceived as a way to mask poor draw distances um right but them taking that and using it as an asset in the game is such a cool idea because uh, it really does, I mean, like, you don't see how, you know, bad things look two or three feet in front of you, but that also means that you don't know what's two or three feet in front of you. Exactly, yeah. And another thing that kind of, like, builds tension up is you'll go a long time sometimes in Silent Hill without really doing anything, you're you're always going through and like checking containers and stuff like that, but there are long sections of the game where there's no enemies to fight. And so it kind of gets you thinking, we're so conditioned when we play video games to expect, you know, enemies to break up the things that you're doing. Like this is not a super spoiler, in the opening of the game, you have this long, long walk or run to get from like the start of the game into the town and there are no enemies there at all and you just walk and you're like okay I hear things when is this thing going to jump out and it never does and there are other sections in the game like that that are really really good yeah I agree uh I I was thinking as I I was replaying kind of like you say um it's it's kind of amazing how okay they were with just giving the player downtime. It's not something that you really see in a lot of games these days, or even honestly, like back then, uh, it wasn't a very common thing. But I, I think it's a really smart design choice for them because it gives you time to 
soak in that atmosphere and just sort of feel the pervasive feeling of it. Yeah, you're soaking that in. Sometimes you're thinking about what just happened. And sometimes, like in the beginning, not much has happened yet. And you're wondering when things are going to happen. So there's all kinds of Mm -hmm. reasons that they're giving you that downtime. And you're right. A lot of games don't do that. They would never give you five minutes of running without something to break that up. Another thing that makes this scary is the, oh, there's there's just a lot of things that are like uncanny. I don't know if that's the right word. Things that are just a little bit weird compared to like the normal versions of things. So this is the PS2. I've played PS2 games that have very realistic, like realistic is maybe not the right word, but very kind of accurate character models. We're past the PS1. Like they could make a good looking character model. I think all the character models in this game look weird, like just a little bit weird. Do you, are you with me here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's something to either like the modeling or like the way that skin is textured that makes it look, I don't know, almost like fake and also kind of grimy in a way that like doesn't happen on real skin yeah it's if that makes sense yeah yeah i can because i can i can picture this in my head for people who haven't played silent hill too just like look up a picture of james and maria and you'll you'll see what i mean they look kind of weird uh maybe like you said the the texture of the skin or the color of the skin's a little bit off and this this like uncanniness also extends into the voice acting i think now i should ask you when you played this like recently did you play with the new voices or the old ones the old ones okay so i played with the new ones so i'm interested to hear if you agree i think the voice acting is really really good but it's weird like there's really long pauses between lines like that normal people wouldn't do the kind of tones of voice are weird it's all off in a good way yeah i definitely agree with that i don't and it's one of those things where it's hard to say if initially that was intentional i like i want to round up and say, say in their favor yes it was but it could have just been you know, it was an old game when it came out and, uh, you know, voice acting wasn't great back then. So, uh, but yeah, there is a, there's a quality to the way that the characters talk to each other where it doesn't feel like people are responding appropriately all the time mm-hmm. or, or like the way, like, there'll be sections of dialogue where characters are talking and then they'll just like quickly move on to another subject in a way that feels really like awkward. There's sometimes characters will ask questions that never get answered. Mm -hmm. Like they're having two different conversations sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely weird. And like when I say weird, I don't mean weird. Like this is, dumb i mean this is this really plays into like this creepy dreamlike atmosphere that this game has going on yeah definitely 
The last thing I want to mention is that your main character, James, is doing all kinds of weird stuff that no sane person would ever do in the game, like sticking your hand into random holes in walls and dirty toilets, jumping into bottomless pits, like without without second guessing any of these decisions. He's like, yep, there's a dirty toilet. I'm going to go elbow deep in that thing. It's it happens often enough where you notice it and it really a lot of it's kind of like gross out but it's definitely like it, it again it just plays into this feeling that like this game is off everything that everyone is doing is off yeah definitely and it's interesting because like those moments when he reaches into things it hap- happens like maybe two or three times um there's always a moment where you think it will be something like a jump scare and maybe like Mm -hmm. the camera will like shake or the controller will vibrate but ultimately like nothing comes out of it except you get a key to a place or whatever you know yeah exactly takes that opportunity to sort of subvert expectations again which i think is very clever yeah totally agree it's really good so Anything else about like the things that build fear and tension in this game that we haven't mentioned so far? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the combat a little bit. That's always something that like <laughs> people talk about in survival horror games because generally speaking, combat is bad in survival horror games. Uh, you know, there's that idea that like d- disempowered characters make you feel scared more or more fragile uh and i'm sure that was their intention when making the game i don't know that that necessarily works for me when i'm playing a game Mm -hmm. but it is a thing okay well let's talk about the combat then real quick uh the (laughs) combat in this game you can equip an item and so this is my first survival horror game so I kind of wonder if this is like standard for the genre at the time you know like you have to hold down like the right trigger to get ready to attack and then you have to press X to actually attack which is one input more than like any other game would have you do they just say press X to swing but in this game you have to ready your attack and then do it then the enemy will fall down and they won't die unless you kick it. So the only way to actually kill something in this game is to run over and kick it when it's down. Is this genre standard for the time or is this a Silent Hill 2 thing? No, um, I think it's at least the like control scheme of like readying, having to ready your weapon before you shoot or attack is pretty common in survival horror games from the uh, the era. I think again, like it's trying to like put you in situations where you have to be uh, you have to be intentional about like when you're attacking and when you're not attacking. Also, I think that like auto auto aim for like weapons probably wasn't great at the time so excuse me um so having to like specifically press a button to ready that action probably made that system easier uh the finisher part is is a weird twist though that's not something that i think i've seen really outside of silent hill 
And it makes me wonder, because I know that Resident Evil has a thing about, like, zombies don't die unless you, like, blow their heads off, I think, is a thing in the earlier games. And I wonder, I know that, like, early Silent Hill is really uh, influenced by Resident Evil stuff, so I wonder if that was just, like, a translation of that mechanic. Okay. Yeah, like, uh, this is our twist on this finishing blow thing. I can can see that. Mm Mm-hmm. The combat has different difficulties that you can set. There's like the beginner, easy, normal, and hard, I think. That's how I would guess it would be. What difficulty did you play this on? Uh, For the combat, I did easy. Okay. I played on beginner um, because I, (laughs) I, I I actually started up Silent Hill 2 like six months before I actually played it, and I played for like 30 minutes and I was like, I don't know, but I did get a little taste of the combat. And so when I started it up again with the intention of actually playing it, I was like, I don't want a challenge in this game at all. So I put it on beginner and that worked out great for me. Was uh, was the combat enjoyable for you on easy? Um, Honestly, like, no. And that's partially to the point of it just not having great combat in general, but it's weird. Uh, like I, I went into it like not wanting to engage with the combat at all, but then like on easy mode, I was just picking up shotgun shells and handgun bullets and, and rifle shells all over the place. So it, it felt like I, it, it felt like too easy, but, but probably, better than the reverse of that which is you can't play the game anymore because it's too hard yeah exactly and i'm glad that you mentioned like you making the choice to engage with the combat so i think the combat is horrendous in this game but the enemy designs and the bosses are really cool so like you should get up and like see them and they'll still attack you and stuff on lower difficulties and you can still die even on beginner mode, you can still die. I died uh, one time because I didn't realize how the health system worked. But oh yeah, the the health system for anyone who is thinking about playing is when you pause the game, it'll show you like a status screen, and it like if it's green, you're healthy. If there's no filter on it, you're damaged, but you're okay. If it's red, you're gonna die soon. At least that's how it was on Beginner. Yeah, that's pretty much... Yeah, that's the way it works. Okay. But the point I was getting to there is that you don't have to fight most of the enemies in the game. Like, when you're running out on the streets of Silent Hill, you can run past everything. They will kind of shamble around toward you, but if you run, they won't follow you indefinitely. You don't get XP, and you don't get items from killing like any or at least most things so if something was like standing in front of me in a hallway i killed it or like in a room but out on the streets of silent hill i just ran past everything and i would suggest other people do the same because you're fighting a lot of the same things yeah by and large there unfortunately isn't much like variety to the types of enemies there are i think maybe there's like five or six different types of enemies in the whole game Right. And like, I I can't, 
I can't sugarcoat this. This is one of the worst combat systems or like worst feeling uh, combat systems in any game that I've played in recent memory. But like, uh, like I said, you can just throw it on beginner difficulty like me, experience the story, experience the puzzles and the other parts of the gameplay and just not really worry about combat. So let's kind of talk about the other parts of the gameplay, things that are not combat. So <laughs> most of the time you are exploring the levels and like an enemy will pop up, you kill it and you go back to exploring. And you're always kind of combing through these levels for key items or keys or like trying to put items together to unlock a thing. And you'll, you'll get into this rhythm of like you enter a hallway and you're like, there are 34 doors in this hallway. I need to check every single door. So it's like going door to door, basically locked, locked, broken, locked. And then you find the door that opens. You're like, okay, something is in here. They, they're very intentional about like, if there's a room with nothing for you, they usually just make that door inaccessible. So you're always just going around looking for stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's one one of the things I was thinking about when playing this game most recently is I don't like it's almost annoying how because obviously like they're trying to put you in realistic spaces so they want like all of the all of the internal locations are completely mapped out like they would be um if you were really there in person but just the sheer amount of like locked or broken doors there are in the game is kind of frustrating it's it's pretty it's pretty insane and the fact that you know you have to check all of them too or like if you let's say you walk into a locker room and there's like a wall that's just full of lockers you kind of get that moment of like, ah, oh, god damn it, I gotta check all these fucking lockers. <laughs> all right, well here we go. Locked, locked, broken, 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 broken. Oh, this one's open. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are a couple saving gra- like this. I I don't know. I'm not. I actually I don't mean to sell this well. I actually don't really love this. Uh, you're you're going through and you're looking for key items. And James, did you ever have trouble like? seeing a key item in here because there are a couple times when i i combed through rooms and like there was a key on the table and i just didn't see it so i like had to look at a guide and they'd be like oh you pick you pick up this key that i just didn't see um i I didn't really ever have that issue but I have a pretty good brain for like how to get through the game now that I've played it a couple of times. So mm-hmm, uh, right. I I know the general like generally where I'm supposed to be going or what I'm supposed to be doing. And actually something that as a newcomer to the series, you might not actually know is instead of having items like sparkle or be highlighted in the game, they actually have a mechanic where James's head will turn and swivel to look at things. Um, yeah. And if you weren't necessarily paying attention for that, it, it could be pretty easy to, to miss stuff. Yeah, I did uh, miss that. I never noticed that when I was playing. And then I heard other people's talking about that. And like, you just brought it up here 
I had forgotten about it again. I didn't put it down in the notes because I never noticed. I was always, I was never looking at James's head. I was looking at, you know, <laughs> tables and stuff like that. I so think it the didn't only like... wrinkle. Uh, I was just gonna say, I think the only wrinkle with that is he doesn't look at like environment objects that you can interact with. So like. Uh, a note on the desk or like something on a whiteboard he won't pay attention to. It's just like, like inventory objects. Okay. Fair enough. Well, this is, I, I have a pretty, I don't know. I was going to say, I have a pretty low opinion of a lot of like older games and the way that they help the player. I feel like a lot of games are unnecessarily like you figure it out idiot and i think that it is cool that they made james's head turn toward keys and stuff i just wish i would have noticed that so yeah um one thing that is really helpful in this game is the map and you're going to be spending a lot of time checking the map which shows your location and like we said earlier you got to go through and check all those you know 35 doors in the hallway it the map will mark which doors are broken and which ones you can go through, which is a huge help when trying to backtrack and like find the, you know, I've gone through half of this level or I've gone through all of this level. I don't know where to go. Check the map. Maybe there's a door you missed or something like that. It's super, super helpful. Yeah, uh, I think one of the really standout things about this series is it's always done a really good job uh, handling its map, specifically uh, because in the game you pick up maps as like in-world objects. Um, so you have like a map of Silent Hill, but because of the nature of Silent Hill, there are just like giant sections of street missing and stuff like that. Um, so you'll right. start like walking down a street and you'll be like, okay, this is the easiest way to get to the thing. But you know, you'll come into, you'll be blocked off by a giant crevasse or a police barricade or, or whatever it is. And you know, it'll actually update the map to reflect that. Yeah. It's really helpful. And with the amount of backtracking and kind of like, I don't want to say aimless exploring, but with the amount of times where you're like just trying to find the place that you're supposed to be going, the map is always helpful in letting you know where you've gone before and, you know, basically where you were blocked from going before so you don't waste your time running across the town or something like that. Yeah, definitely. How do you feel about the puzzles in this game? I actually have always really liked the the puzzles. Um, they're another thing that kind of draw me to the series. It has a reputation for those sort of like riddle style logic puzzles. Um, mm -hmm. Mostly just because I like to feel smart. <laughs> well, uh, but... Who doesn't? <laughs> But um, sometimes, I mean, sometimes they can definitely be a little, like, obtuse. Um, I tried playing through on hard riddle difficulty and ended up, this time around, um, ended up having to restart the game. Because <laughs> the, oh, the wow. first real puzzle that you run into, the uh, the one with the, like, writing desk where you put the coins in was just mm -hmm. I, I couldn't figure it out <laughs> and that's i'm glad you brought that up 
Silent Hill 2 has something that's very cool where you can set combat difficulty and puzzle difficulty independent of each other. And that's awesome because I wanted to try like the puzzles as they were intended, but I did not want to try the combat as it was intended. So I played on, like I said, beginner combat and I played on normal puzzle difficulty. And I I enjoyed most of the riddles and you do get that sense of like figuring it out because on normal difficulty, I thought they were pretty difficult. Like you, you almost had to get out like a piece of paper and like riddle your way through it. And I, I really enjoyed it. I did use a guide for some of them. It's just the way my brain works. I don't enjoy being frustrated at puzzles. So if I like, you know, if I did my thing, you know, one or two times and it didn't work, I was like, I'll just look in a guide and move on. That's just the way my brain works. But I do think the puzzles are good. Yeah. And, and I will say, um, excuse me, um, that the hard level puzzles are like a, a, a really big step up from the normal level puzzles. And I think, right. If I'm remembering correctly, uh, there's actually, if after you beat the game once, you can unlock an even harder riddle difficulty if, if you want to do that. There's like a, an unlockable extra mode. <laughs> oh, that sounds insane. Yeah, I remember when I was looking up puzzle solutions on the wiki, it would always list like beginner, easy, normal, and then hard. And you're right. The hard ones are like, uh, they're insane. The way like they're they're really wordy compared to the like the easy and normal ones. They're ridiculous. Like props to anyone who's just gonna sit down and puzzle their way through those. The the trouble that I was having with the hard difficulty is like you said, um it's hard to sort of pick out the relevant information. So it'll be like four paragraphs of like riddle that you have to comb through. And obviously you have items that you have to interact with a thing in a way, but, but what is the information and what is just like flowery prose is really hard to, to differentiate. Yeah. The puzzles that I had trouble with were the ones where you have to combine items together. And there's one in particular that like, I don't know if we'll talk about it after this, the spoiler wall, but there is one of these item interactions later in the game that I just straight up would not have thought of without a guide. It didn't seem very intuitive to me. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. So those were the ones that I was more thankful for the guide for. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's unfortunate because like those like combining items uh, to to solve a puzzle thing is not like a mechanic that's used anywhere else. You could never just combine items in your inventory to get a different effect out of it. So you, you wouldn't even necessarily think of having to combine items unless you were looking through your inventory and noticing that specific items have a combined option as opposed right. to just like an examine or use. Yeah, that's how I figured that out. Yeah. So that part, not great, but overall, the puzzles are pretty good. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts in summary about Silent Hill 2.
And we're back. We're going to give our wrap-up thoughts about Silent Hill 2 without spoilers, still. Guest goes first per custom. So, James, what is your kind of final summary of Silent Hill 2 and your final thoughts, and what do you want to tell the listeners about it? Um, I would honestly encourage pretty much everyone to play this game. I, I don't necessarily know that it's, like, essential video game canon but it's such a it's such a fun experience even despite its flaws um it's such a good good example of of really finely tuned uh atmosphere and and like like we said earlier sort of every piece of the game being used in service of the the atmosphere that they're cultivating that it's really not like many other games that you can play Yeah, totally agree. This is a game that I actually do think is like anyone who wants to make a trip through like the history of video games. I think this should be like an essential play on it, like from the PS2 era and like a, oh, kind of early-ish survival horror. I mean, I'm not a historian of survival horror, but this game came (laughs) out 20 years ago, so... This is like as the genre was evolving. And if you're a person who values storytelling in games, if you are somebody who like can get past subpar gameplay, in my opinion, to get like an A plus story, that this is a game that you have to play because this this story is so good. It's so worth experiencing. We just talked about it for a few minutes earlier because any more than that would be spoiler territory. And I do think this is a story that you absolutely should experience. So if you're able to kind of push through gameplay, or if you're like me and you have no qualms about putting a game on the lowest difficulty and just kind of experiencing the story that way, I think this is a game that you absolutely should experience. So it's, oh, it's kind of hard to get a hold of. Uh, Like we said, James played it on a PS2 I think you can, I mean, you can emulate it, of course. You can also play it on Mm -hmm. PS Now like I did. It's not like super widely available on every single, you know, modern console. So it's a little bit more difficult, but I do think that it's worth the effort. I will say uh, really quick in terms of availability, um, there is like an abandonware PC port that probably would run okay on most... um, most modern machines um it's just like it's it's not a good port so you have to play with like keyboard and and bad controller layouts but it does it exists Mm -hmm. and since it's abandoned where it's free so that's an option okay yeah good to have options especially with older games that are not being re-released on all the modern consoles Mm -hmm. so Going to do a little bit of housekeeping here before the spoiler wall. So if you are going to tap out now, thank you for listening this far. Come back after you played Silent Hill 2 for the story discussion. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe on your platform of choice. Leave a rating and review if your platform allows for it. And the best thing you can do is spread the good word. Tell people that there is a video games podcast that you want to recommend. And when they start running the other direction, chase after them. 
I also do a podcast called a top three podcast where each week my friends and I pick a topic. We go through our top threes in that topic, discuss, argue, rip on each other the way that best friends of 20 plus years do. So if you want to hear more of me, check out a top three podcast. Check the episode description for links to social media pages for this show. It is on Instagram and Facebook at Tales from the Backlog and on Twitter at, let me see if I can remember this, T-F-T-B-L-Pod. Yes. So, again, if you don't want to remember that, just click the link in the episode description. You can chat with me about the games that come up on the show. You can talk to me about guesting on the show. I'm always looking for guests. So, check that out. We are going to take another quick break, and when we come back, it is spoiler time for Silent Hill 2. Okay, we are back, and it is spoiler time for Silent Hill 2. So... Before we start with the story talk, I want to kind of issue a content warning. There's a lot of very sensitive story material that most video games don't go into. Things like sexual assault, uh, things like, uh, like, oh, binge eating, um, violence on animals, all kinds of stuff like that. If things like that are uh, things that bother you, please be careful about listening to this show and also be careful about playing the game if there are things like that for you. Just want to bring that up before we start. So we're going to get into the story. This episode of the show is going to be a kind of like non-linear look through the story. We're not going to go beat by beat through the levels. We are going to kind of talk about the characters and situations as they come up in the game. And then at the end, we're going to talk about uh, my favorite level. So this story is best framed, I think, through prior knowledge of your, like you already played the game before and then you played again. And like for me, I actually listened to this story broken down on the Watch Out for Fireballs episode before I played the game. So I kind of had an idea of what was going on it is helpful to get outside opinions or play the game multiple times. So you will see that Silent Hill is not a uh, real place, which, you know, I don't think that's a spoiler at this point. James, do you think that's a spoiler? I kind of saved it for now. I don't don't know. Uh, Yeah, probably not a spoiler at this point. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time. There's been movies and stuff like that. Uh, I didn't know because I'm not a horror person and I just kind of tune out Silent Hill talk up until I played this game. So I wasn't aware, but uh, this Silent Hill version in this game has three phases. There is like the, I'm doing air quotes here, the real version uh, where, or there is the real version, never mind, where James visited with his wife and that's why she tells him to meet him at their special place because it's a place they did go together. Mm-hmm. There's the the fog version, which is super dreamlike, has those characters acting uncanny, all those things we talked about. You kind of can't leave the town. And that is like the town 
uh, summoning you, basically. And the third way is the, they call it the other world, which is basically like your own personal hell, where you need to face what it is that you've done, whatever got you summoned into Silent Hill. Am I um, on base with this? This is my kind of what I'm taking from this. Yeah, uh, the the way that like the particular phases articulate uh, slightly different in different games, but definitely for this one, that's the way they function. Okay, cool. Glad to know we're not starting the spoiler section with straight up <laughs> misinformation right off the bat. <laughs> so, um, the game starts with James in the world's grossest roadside rest stop bathroom. Has perhaps never been cleaned in all of its years of service <laughs> and he's just gotten to silent hill the fog is everywhere you read that letter from uh, his wife mary claiming that she's waiting in the special place but mary has been dead for three years and so we mentioned earlier that long 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 forest path that you go down it's extremely low visibility you all, you hear these animal sounds out there but you never get attacked. There are no enemies. It's just to kind of build the atmosphere. And you meet our first character we're going to talk about, who is Angela. And I don't, what was your like initial impression of meeting Angela for the first time in that kind of like graveyard area? Uh, she's just so, so weird. Like, I think maybe a person who didn't know much about like psychological trauma or like like arrested development or stuff like that might read her as a person on drugs but she she has this really just sort of odd cadence to her voice and and like sort of really like like you say like a dreamy sort of quality to the way that she talks yeah, that arrested development's a good term for her. There's a quote that I singled out like as soon as I saw it. Uh, you ask her what she's doing in the graveyard. It's a graveyard, right? I'm remembering this right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you ask her what she's doing there, and she says, I'm looking for my mama. I, I mean, my mother. And it's like, oh, that's that's odd. This is a grown woman saying she's looking for her mama in this graveyard. It's super weird. It throws you off the you know, it throws you off right away. And uh, we're just going to kind of go through Angela's story right now, instead of going through the different times you see her in the game. So later in the story, you see Angela, she's like laying down in front of this giant mirror, and she's got a knife, and she's about to kill herself in there. And you go and talk to her, and she's just so out of it, and apathetic, uh, she says that she deserves whatever's going to happen. James deserves it too. And like at this, this is early in the game. You don't really know what's going on yet, but with the benefit of knowing the whole story, it makes perfect sense here. And in that scene, you get the knife from her and immediately she thinks James is going to use it on her. Like you, you take it to protect her from herself. And then she immediately recoils when you take a step and that should be a hint as to what Angela's story is all about. So do you have any kind of thoughts about 
those first couple of meetings with Angela, other than that, like uncanny nature about it, this is like the, this is the biggest scene we get with her until we find out what's actually happened with her. Yeah. Um, they definitely do a good job of setting a tone, I think for how the different, uh, characters that you'll meet throughout the game. Cause I, th- I think you meet her twice before you meet anyone else, if I'm remembering correctly. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And, like, again, with the benefit of her whole story, like, it's kind of amazing how much, how much, like, groundwork they do for her specifically, uh, in terms of, like, what it actually is that's going on that you find out later. Right. It it definitely primes you. It gives you like an idea that like something's not right with her. Maybe if you're really observant and already thinking about this, you'll be like, oh, she's suffered some kind of abuse in the past. That's why she's so skittish. Um, And she's very obviously like super depressed here. And but without the benefit of knowing what her full story is, you might just come out of it being like that. She's really weird. She's afraid. Why is she so afraid of James? like that so it's a it's a good couple of scenes to build up to like the moment where you find out what she's doing or what what happened to her uh when you 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 do this boss fight in this like this horribly um how do i want to say this (laughs) evocative room (laughs) of um just this horrible sexual imagery there is uh, these like tubes on the walls with pistons thrusting in and out. It's super uncomfortable. And then the um, you fight a boss in that room that's attacking her. That's like two bodies fused together on a bed. And well, before I go any further with that, like, what are was your reaction to that? You know, that room and that boss encounter and that what we learn about Angela in that scene. Um. I I had actually wondered on my most recent playthrough if that if those pistons but I mean hearing you describe it it seems pretty obvious but if that there was some other sort of meaning behind that if it like my my mind was automatically going to like a mechanical thing that was going on maybe in Silent Hill or otherwise but but obviously like just the visual Im- imagery when you lay it out like that it's pretty obvious um the the god i want to say the official name for that enemy is like perfect father or something which is terrifying um yeah but yeah it's it's a weird like (laughs) it's like a it's like a bed frame that has pretty clearly the form of like two people on it um and the like the the i guess we haven't really talked about the enemy design a lot but one of the things that you'll notice kind of reoccurring is like really grotesque uh but like intricately designed lips on a lot of them um and it, it makes sure to show you those in the scene yeah it's a lot it's it's a lot to to walk in on um and and like i don't know 
from a certain perspective, the way that she reacts to it is almost like almost comical in the like she hits it she throws the tv on it and then she goes and kicks it uh but like again with the context of what that creature represents to her like it makes sense right so what that creature represents to her is her sexual abuse by her father and i believe she ended up killing him and she has these these lines of dialogue where like you're trying to help her and she's she's just kind of like kind of resigned to more abuse and she she has this line where she's like ah oh, you're all the same you all want the same thing just go ahead and take it take what you came for something like that and combined with you know that boss design those pistons that are thrusting into the walls it's uh, it's all just extremely uncomfortable and it it tells her story really well without actually saying it out loud as far as i know they never say like yes uh james i'm here because of the the rape uh from my father and stuff like that it's all uh environment design enemy design and then those few little lines of dialogue i think there is a newspaper that you can pick up that mentions like somebody being killed and their house burned down um and like the name of the person is blocked out but there's enough uh left over that if you knew the angela's last name you could make that connection but it's not it's definitely never like i don't think explicitly there's a line drawn between the two Okay, so I I think I remember reading that newspaper, but I didn't put two and two together. Is that why her version of Silent Hill is always on fire then? I think so, yeah. So later in the game, um, at the last level, you have that moment with Angela on the stairs, and uh, like you mentioned earlier, James, and you, like the whole building is on fire and you know james makes a comment like oh it's hot in here and she says oh you can uh you can see it too now huh and so it kind of gives you that feeling like this is her world that she's in everything's always on fire um when you go through and replay the game and you see those scenes if you just imagine everything on fire it kind of i mean she's not reacting to the flames but it does add a little bit extra to those scenes with her yeah, definitely. Any other thoughts about Angela before we move on? The only thing that I would say that, again, struck me on the replay is, and, you know, obviously this is a game that came out 20 years ago, uh, prevailing thoughts around uh, sexual abuse and, and whether you are entitled to uh, the death of your rapist or not have changed over time. But, like, I feel like out of all of the characters, like Angela is kind of treated unfairly in that, like if the idea of silent Hill is to like punish you, like Angela killed somebody and that's bad generally speaking, but it's not like she murdered somebody without incredibly good justification, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can agree with that. Everyone else who's in Silent Hill, all the other characters, well, most of the other characters have done something that is actually, 
you know, horrific and bad and is hard to justify in uh, most ways. And that's a good point about Angela. I'm maybe that's like, I did get this like thing that her character is a lot more tragic than maybe even the main character's story. Definitely more than Eddie, uh, in my opinion. And (laughs) I got, I just kind of got that feeling. And I think not that I'm saying I thought of it at the time, but now that I'm thinking about it, that does add like an extra layer of like, uh, I just feel so bad for, for Angela in this game, more so than a lot of the other characters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Angela is a very good character. She's, when I think about this game five years down the road, she's going to be the side character that I think about the most in her story there. And the way those cutscenes play out, it's, it's a lot of things all wrapped into one. It's, you know, depression, it's abuse, everything like that. And I, I, I think this is the one where like, I can say that like this game handles that subject better than, you know, like, would, would you trust 99% of video game developers to handle a subject like that and do it tactfully and not, um, not in any way that's like making light of anything that happened? No, definitely you can you can say that like the game handles the the subject with the like gravity that it deserves. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the the point you raised about her being there unjustly is uh, is true. So I don't want to say that like the game is doing a great thing by maybe blaming her for it cuz she's there because it's her fault she did something. But you can look at it in the way that it's extra fucked up that she's there because she maybe doesn't deserve to be there as opposed to Eddie, who is the next character we're going to talk about (laughs) who Eddie's got a hell of an entrance. Doesn't he? (laughs) The first time you meet Eddie. And like, I got to say props to that voice actor because they did the most convincing I've ever heard someone fake throwing up maybe ever yeah it's it's really gross it's it's visceral and what's what's extra weird about it is if you just like because you can go there and and talk to him and he'll keep throwing up like as long as you're there they'll keep playing the the sound and he's just puking his brains out when you see it he's in this bathroom there's a dead guy like on the ground next to him and he says he didn't do it but he's just puking his fucking brains out and he'll do it as long as you're there which kind of adds to that you know weird factor of this game so i don't know how do you feel about eddie i like for as well sketched a character as angela is i feel like eddie like I get what they're going for, but doesn't like Eddie feels like a very much like a cliche in the way that Angela doesn't. So like he's a fat guy who got picked on and then he also turned out to be a murderer. So, (laughs) right. He got picked on and he killed the people that picked on him. And there's like this hinting that he killed a dog because uh, mm-hmm. the dog was picking on him, like he's hallucinating that happening. I I agree with you. I think Eddie is the most 
like a caricature of any of the characters in here. And uh, there are a couple parts with Eddie that kind of resonated with me. Um, one of the scenes where you get to him later, he's just like binge eating pizza and won't kind of like won't focus. You need to, you're at a point in the game where you need to ask him questions. I think it's when like Laura runs away and you need, you're like, Eddie, like, don't you want to chase after her? And he's just sitting there eating pizza, uh, kind of, I, I, maybe I'm projecting here, but like binge eating to kind of ignore stuff that's happening, which is something that I've had a bit of experience with in my life. So that moment kind of resonated, but overall in a game with excellent characters that go far beyond the surface level, I think Eddie is the one that doesn't quite work for me. Yeah, and he he also has that sort of element of like sort of childlike uh speech patterns and the way that he, you know, talks and thinks is very childlike too. Uh there are a couple of times when you interact with him. I I guess maybe other than Laura, he's he is actually a child or or at least like a young adult. Um but you know he's just he's like got a revolver and he's like you you know like the way that you get people to stop talking bad about you is you just you know point a gun at them and go boom mm-hmm. yeah 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 there <laughs> is then, a very go james ahead. uh humorously and correctly responds eddie you can't just shoot people because they're making fun of you right <laughs> Yeah, it's a you're right. It is a very childlike like uh way to deal with your problems. Um kind of like a, you know, like a little kid if someone's being mean to them, they you know, want to fight or something like that. So that's a good mm-hmm. point. But overall, I I just, just don't think Eddie is really worthy of the conversation that, you know, Maria and um Angela are. And also Pyramid Head uh, who you meet next in the game. Soon after you meet Eddie, you you actually see Pyramid Head in this apartment building. Do you, did you see this when uh, you kind of turn the corner and he's just like there on the other side of this grate? You can't get to him. He can't. He does. He's not trying to get to you. He's just there. And then when you turn back later, you go back later. He's gone. Yeah, I actually did notice that, and I don't think I've seen that before. So that was that was cool to to notice. Yeah, it's it was so quick when I was playing. It was like he's there. What the fuck is that? Then I went into a room and came out, and he was gone. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, uh, like I I I hope I've made clear. I had no idea about anything about Silent Hill. So I know Pyramid Head is super famous, but I had never like seen or like understood anything about Pyramid Head before playing this game. So what do you think about that first scene when you meet Pyramid Head and he's, uh, he's, he's gone to town on some of those mannequin (laughs) enemies. It's, it's funny again with like, older brain and maybe different context i i don't think i i would have initially read that scene as sexual i i think as a kid or you know sometime in my early 20s i probably would have like it it's just as easily i think recognizable as as being like sexual as it is like 
like aggressive and violent like it looks like he's attacking them oh yeah it's all of the above for sure right right and it and it's interesting just like from a because you don't usually see other other creatures interacting with each other so i i think it it does a good job of outlining the fact that like pyramid head is like holds a special place among the other enemies yeah and like you've spent you spent a couple now a couple hours now at this point fighting through these kind of enemies that look like mannequins and then you see pyramid head just like abusing them and you are like oh this is shit this is something different and then james uh tries to shoot him a few times he hides in the closet like a fucking idiot again those things that james does that like you know anyone who's trying to stay alive wouldn't do you know you you'd think he'd walk in and see that you know that scene of pyramid head abusing them in the kitchen and he would be like okay i'm leaving this room but he goes further into the room and gets in the closet and looks through the uh the slats uh there's a movie that I've never seen, but I know that happens. Blue Velvet, is that the movie? Oh, that might be. Yeah, anyway, I, uh, I don't want to speak Velvet. speak too much about something I don't know a whole lot about. Anyway, Pyramid Head. Um, great design on Pyramid Head. If you uh, haven't played the game and you're still listening, go look up a picture of Pyramid Head. He's got this great big kind of iron uh, pyramid on his head, how he got his name. And he's carrying this big-ass knife. And when he walks around, you can hear it scraping on the floor. And later in the game, you can get the knife if you do a bunch of seemingly random things. Uh, but you can't use it. Uh, you would think you're like, oh, I'm going to pick up this badass, you know, greatsword weapon. But you can't really uh, use it effectively. I Did you, uh, have you ever gotten the knife? I'll ask you that first. Yeah, yeah. Uh... And you're right. I mean, like, it is one of those things where for for James to wield, it's almost, uh, like, completely ineffective. It slows your movement speed to a crawl, and there's such a wind-up on every attack that you could do with it that it's functionally useless. I think that's kind of cool. Like, the game telling you, like, this is not for you. You don't deserve yeah. this, James. Like... Both of both Jameses. You don't deserve this. <laughs> and and the other thing that's notable about Pyramid Head is he he looks like a complete human, but he's very like you don't obviously he never takes his pyramid head off, but he, he he's very like muscularly defined, so he's he's got a very strong frame. His arms are very like muscularly developed. Um, mm -hmm. to sort of give that imposing uh, sort of scare. Yeah. And that imposing nature is used when you have your encounters with Pyramid Head, which are uh, memorable. Even on, I said I died earlier on beginner difficulty. The one time I died was against Pyramid Head in the apartment building when you're getting out. You have to mm -hmm. you know, lower the water level. There's also that, like, boss encounter with him, with Maria, where he uh, he's chasing you through those corridors. And 
Maria is like a lot slower or her AI pathfinding is terrible for whatever reason. Um, it's a really tense thing when all you're doing is running, but Pyramid Head is so imposing that even I was like, shit, 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 gotta get out. Hurry up, hurry up, Maria. Come on, let's go. Like, even though I'm playing on beginner difficulty, I was still kind of freaked out by that sequence um, and the like double Pyramid Head fight at the end. Yeah, and that I think that chase sequence is a really really cool sequence too because i it also gives a little bit of like characterization to you as the player but also to james so like you're playing a video game and you don't want this npc to die because in video games that means you get a game over but like you also don't want to die so you you know you just have to like book it to the elevator um, but you feel mm-hmm. bad about it, right? Because like Maria is this person you're supposed to be like keeping track of and protecting. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that we'll just finish up that sequence there. Like you're running through these passages and you're trying, it's a mad dash to the elevator and Maria is too slow and pyramid head kills her. And we'll talk about Maria in a second and why this is so affecting for James. But uh, Pyramid Head, I think it's implied that he kills her several times. I think you only actually see him kill her that one time, though. Am I remembering that right? I think you also see her get killed in the double Pyramid Head fight at the end. That's right. She's in the that last weird one. Yeah. cage thing. Right. So Pyramid Head is is killing this NPC over and over again, Maria, and... This is super affecting for James, and it's be in like the purpose of this, the purpose of Pyramid Head is to like punish James, like a manifestation of his guilt over what he did and what brought him to Silent Hill. And he just takes this out on James by killing the person that he's, you know, supposed to be taking care of over and over again. And only after James comes to terms with what he did do the double pyramid heads kill themselves because their purpose has been served. And I thought that scene was really, really cool. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's interesting that, so the first time you fight pyramid head, you're not actually doing a boss battle. That encounter is just on a timer. Uh, You don't, it doesn't damaging him doesn't do anything. Uh, it's just a certain amount of time that has to pass before that water level drops. And then he just leaves. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even, he doesn't even care that you're there. And then that final battle, again, you don't kill Pyramid Head. Pyramid Head kills itself. You know, at no point during the game until you make that realization, do you have any sort of control or power over him? Yeah, yeah. That's, it's it's really good like and i'm not sure if i noticed that during the game that like because i'm just like pouring bullets into pyramid head and so i thought maybe i was doing damage and he was like okay enough for now i'll see you next time like that but uh, it does make a lot more sense the way that you lay it out like um at the end when you do enough damage to pyramid head are the double ones they don't die they kill themselves so yeah good point how do you feel like 
Pyramid Head has kind of become like a mascot for Silent Hill, I think. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's played uh, the Silent Hill games, first of all, am I right that Pyramid Head is only in number two? And do you think that he's a good mascot for the series, if it even needs a mascot? So, actually, uh, so so Pyramid, Pyramid Head has definitely become a... a mascot for the series and if it was just limited to like outside of game media uh that would be fine like he's a recognizable figure he looks cool it's a cool design uh but what bothers me more is that the popularity of pyramid head as a character has kind of leaked into other silent hill media when it doesn't really make sense for it to be there so like he's in both of the movies uh he pops up in homecoming and i want to say silent hill zero uh but like as established in the game kind of like we talked about pyramid head is specifically like something that is a manifestation of james's need to punish himself for what he did Uh, right it doesn't and it, like, e- even if you wanted to take the next sort of leap and say, well, you know, James came up with that idea because he saw the pictures in the historical society, which kind of maybe lay some background for their historically in the past being an actual pyramid head. And so other people that have been to Silent Hill might have seen those pictures, too. Like, it, it all just feels a bit like a bridge too far. Yeah, like, I don't really have a stake in this as someone who has never played any of the other games or has never watched any of the other movies, but I do agree that this character was designed to be very personal for James. It is kind. Of, it would be kind of odd to see it in the other media, kind of out of context, just because, uh, I don't know, they want to have something recognizable so people will pay I don't know. That seems kind of cynical, but you know, this is capitalism. So you never know. So moving on, we should talk about Maria. talked about her getting killed several times but um, talking about who she is and her character so when you get to what you think is James and Mary's special place which is like the thing that you're supposed to be doing in this game you see uh, someone who you think is Mary you've looked at a picture Uh, James has a picture in his inventory you can look at it so you think it's her it's actually not her it's Maria who looks identical to Mary but she is much more uh how do you how would we describe her sexual like 
like kind of hypersexual all the time. Yeah. Uh she's she's, you know, a little bit more outgoing, a little like flirty. Um it's interesting. I, I don't know if you uh did any reading on the character design of this game, but um apparently there are a lot of people that think that her outfit is uh oh I wanna say it's modeled after like a Christina Aguilera outfit that was like popular at the time <laughs> that was that was that like leopard print mini skirt and like red like cardigan crop top thing mm-hmm. yeah i can see that for sure yeah yeah it's interesting and so like you you meet her and she becomes like the main side character and there's always this weird thing going on where you see like James sees uh, Maria, but he thinks it's Mary and he calls her Mary and she gets mad and then they flirt a little or she flirts a little bit. James usually or James doesn't reciprocate like ever, I don't think. But she's extremely flirty all the time. Kind of like there's this one part where James calls her Mary by accident and Maria says, like, oh, I can be Mary if you want me to be. I can be whatever you mm-hmm. want. And so I, I'm going to save her, like, kind of what, why she's there, kind of her purpose until the end where, like, the last level where everything comes together. But that's kind of like the introduction to Mary or Maria. See, I'm doing it too. Um, <laughs> so, like, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about Maria and her place? Um, kind of before we get into like what her place in the story is but any kind of general thoughts on her design or her dialogue or anything like that i i always really liked uh maria just because she is she is uncanny and how like normal she is compared to everyone else like there is the angle of like her being kind of hypersexual and that being out of place in the world. But she never really seems particularly bothered by any of the monsters or the stuff that's going on. She just like, she seems so, so normal. And that that's really like out of place in such an abnormal setting. Yeah. And the other thing about her that's kind of uncanny, which we mentioned before, is that she dies several times. And you watch her die. You watch her die twice, I think. And then one time you come back and she's dead after you had talked to her before. So she dies several times. She always comes back. This bothers James and she doesn't have any recollection of it. So that kind of like, I started to get the feeling like... You know, and with the combination of her looking like Mary, I started to get the feeling pretty quickly, uh, quicker than I normally do. Like, uh, Maria's like, she's of this place. She's, she's part of this whole thing. Yeah, they, I mean, they definitely do a pretty good job of seeding her connection to uh, Mary. There's even points where uh, there, there's like, a cutscene, I think, at the hospital where you're separated by, I don't know, like a patient glass or or something. But she talks to James like she's Mary, you know, in a very specifically mm-hmm. un-Maria way. Right. 
she starts giving details about things that only Mary would know, you know? Yeah, I think that's the, the, the cutscene where she mentions the videotape. Right, yeah. So, before we get to talking about that videotape, there's one other NPC that you see often in the game. Her name is Laura. She's a little girl. Uh, she's the one who's giving you motivation for going into these buildings. You're constantly chasing her. She's constantly running away from you. Um, and you feel like you should find her, number one, because she's a little girl and like that protective instinct. Number two, though, is that she talks like she knows Mary and she knows things about Mary. So you're after the truth. So you got to find her and get that truth out of her. But uh, before I get into my thoughts about Laura, how do you feel about her, James? Laura, Laura is kind of an interesting character because I, I feel like in a way she doesn't really fit in with everyone else like everyone else has a reason to be there i don't know like taking into consideration the sort of mythos of silent hill like i don't know why the town would bring her there yeah unless she was brought there just to punish james because she knew mary in real life and she uh, she doesn't like James because uh, she was in the hospital with Mary and James didn't visit often. She probably heard Mary complain about James a lot, so she doesn't like him. In that way that, you know, if you have a friend who's always complaining about their girlfriend or whatever, you end up not liking their girlfriend, even if you've never met her before. So yeah, she's always doing that. And then, like, she she's a little asshole there's no other way to describe it she's a little <laughs> asshole to james the whole game uh there's that famous boss fight where she locks you in the room um and tries to get you killed and then acts all innocent when you come out and she kind of calls james out on his shit at the end so you're right like with the mythos of the town i'm not sure like she wasn't she obviously wasn't brought there because she did something bad and interestingly, like I saw on a uh, kind of YouTube um, like analysis of this game, someone pointed out that's why she's not scared of anything in the town. There's no danger for her. Oh. So there are monsters around and stuff like that. And she's like, she's just kind of prancing through the streets. She's not really worried. You, there's one time you see her, she's just kind of chilling on a, uh, like on a, uh, like a balcony or like at the top of a wall or something like that. Yeah. So. That's an interesting way to see um, her as like there's no danger in Silent Hill for her because she didn't do anything wrong. Hmm, that's interesting. I guess I had never thought about it that way. Well, I hadn't either until <laughs> I, mean, I was watching, uh, trying to try to gather opinions about the game. It works for me, and it still doesn't quite explain why she's there and even how she's there. But you know. I don't need to dig too deep into stuff like that. I can just accept that she's there to be part of uh, James's atonement. Yeah, totally. And it does sort of bring up a weird sort of her presence and the way that she talks about Mary uh, lays track for sort of a weird splintered timeline that 
James can't account for. Oftentimes when you talk to Laura, she'll mention talking to Mary as a recent thing, whereas the information we've been presented by the game is that Mary died three years ago. Right. And you you figure that out uh, from that scene where, like, you see, you get a, I think it's a postcard from Mary to Laura, and it says, like, happy birthday. And you ask Laura, like, hey, when was your birthday? And she says, oh, it was a week ago or something like that. Yeah. So that's when you get that, that like, realization, like, oh, that information that I had held so, like, you know, held as fact is not true uh, for for the whole game, basically, up until Mm -hmm. then. So the kind of the level I want to talk about is the Lakeview Hotel. There's other levels we kind of glossed over, like the hospital, the uh, historical society, the um, apartment building. I do want to mention one thing that's that was very creepy and noticeable is that staircase in the uh, historical society before we move on. You remember that one, the one that goes on yeah. forever? The whole historical society, I think, is one of those sort of really cool moments of downtime because all you're doing is moving through like a local history museum and you can look at pictures on the walls and you can interact with things, but there's really nothing going on. And then, like you said, it, the end of that sort of section of the game ends with you just walking down a staircase for like a minute and a half. And as you go down, like (laughs) the, the music and the, the sort of atmosphere and that weird industrial stuff like intensifies and gets closer and closer and closer. Yeah. It's a really cool moment. And I found a little bit of trivia about that in the last couple of weeks. I, when I, cause you're right, you go down this staircase for like, I think the actual time is like 38 seconds or something like that but in a game to be going down a staircase for that long is an insane amount of time it makes you feel like you're going down a perpetual staircase and like i almost turned around and went back because i thought it was like the super mario 64 staircase that will just loop forever or something like that oh yeah but (laughs) i'm glad i pushed on Uh, but actually there was a bit of trivia from the developers. It's an actual staircase that they built to be that long and not some kind of like programming trick like the Super Mario 64 one is. So I thought that was oh, kind interesting. of cool. Huh. And I would just say like also connected to the uh, the historical society, the, the prison area that you go through is where you do mu- most of your jumping down holes. Uh, which is a surprisingly yeah. <laughs> recurrent theme in the game. Um, but one of the things yeah. that I thought was interesting, and I didn't pick this up, uh, but I, I also kind of poked around at YouTube stuff, um, and I found a thing that was talking about, like, you can tell the first time that you have to jump down a large hole, like, James is hesitant. Like, there's a couple of, like, you know, he he kind of looks down, he pokes around, and then he jumps. And by the last time, there's no hesitation at all. He just, like, steps right off right. into it, which I think is a, a nice, subtle bit of characterization. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool little detail. Let's you know, uh, James is either becoming accustomed to it or he's just resigned to, like, hey, if this is the one that kills me, so be it. Yeah. So... 
after that, you get in a boat and you ride across the lake to the Lakeview Hotel, which is the last level of the game. I think it's the best level in the game. And this is where you get all of the like big story exposition for like why James is here. Kind of, you. I don't remember if this is this is where you get the staircase scene with Angela. Um, Yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. So you get in this hotel. This is the place that's like the special place because James and Mary had spent a weekend here uh, when she was sick, or maybe. They had spent a vacation here. I don't want to say definitively that it was a weekend, but they came on vacation. It was like their last good time together because it's it's uh, pretty clear that when she was sick, their relationship was rocky, we'll say. So th- that's why this is their special place. Mm-hmm. And there's one kind of moment. It's not really related to the story, but I wanted to point this out. Uh, there's a part in the level where you have to get on an elevator, but you can't carry any of, you, any of your stuff with you because it has a weight limit. Mm-hmm. And you have to like dump all your inventory out onto a shelf beforehand, but you don't know that before you go in. So you get this, you're in like a menu pressing the elevator button. I don't remember why you're in a menu, but you are. And you get this message that says like, weight allowance one person and like a buzzer sounds like you're over the weight allowance and I was like holy Uh fuck like what else is in this elevator with me right now but it turns out it's just you got to get rid of your your stuff anyway a Uh cool little moment there yeah and that's that's fun because it it forces you to dump your inventory you know that sort of taking what little meager power that you have away from you. And that, that section that you go through without your stuff is pretty fast, luckily, because I think dragging that out particularly long, uh, would be annoying, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun little, little, uh, taking power away from the, the character. I right. Think, and uh, even me, I think who- that's, Uh, I was just going to say, I think that's also where you find one of my favorite things in this game, which is a number 10 can of light bulbs, uh, which is almost certainly not a real thing, but it's a very funny thing to come across. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You find this, you find this huge tin can, uh, you know, that would carry like, you know, industrial portions of, you know, tomato sauce or something like that, mm-hmm. which is full of light bulbs. Super <laughs> weird. That, yeah, that section where you're without your stuff was scary even for me, who was playing on beginner difficulty. Like, even though I, at that point in the game, I had figured out how to heal and all of that stuff, and I was in no danger at all of ever dying to anything, take that stuff away, and even I felt that strain of, like, I gotta figure this out, I gotta hurry up, and I gotta get as soon as I was able to, like, book back to that room and pick up all my stuff again. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's kind of talk about the, like, ending setup. So you mentioned the videotape that mm-hmm. Maria had mentioned before. And so the, the key, be- the task becomes to get this videotape and watch it. And it shows you what James actually did, why he's here. And... So Mary had been sick. She'd been in the hospital for a while. 
and James uh, smothered her with a pillow. And up until now, you've kind of gotten like conflicting things about like how their relationship was. Like James obviously loves her because he's here in this crazy ass town trying to find her. But you also get like dialogue and audio from Mary, like yelling at James it was not all good all the time. In fact, it was probably bad most of the time. And I think specifically, Laura might say previous to this, like, you killed her, or like, you know, you made her go away, or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And it, James is probably like, oh, that that's ridiculous. I would never kill her. Yeah. But you see it on the tape that he smothered her with a pillow and it, it's kind of left up to you, like, why he did it. Let's let's kind of get into this kind of thing, like, that Maria is there as a kind of, like, sexualized version of Mary, because Mary was in the hospital for a long, long time, and I think the game hints that James cheated on her. Do, are you with me on that, or did you not get that? Oh, interesting. I didn't, I guess I didn't pick up on that. Um, my idea was that Maria was just supposed to be like, kind of like an idealized version of Mary, like, or at least a a version of Mary that was so different and so much more accessible than like when she was sick. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got you. And like, I was also kind of thinking maybe if James didn't cheat on her, he was at least very sexually frustrated during this time because all of the enemies in the game are sexual in some way, or most of them. You mentioned the the lips earlier on a lot of the enemies, but there's like there's those kind of nurse enemies, there's the mannequins with, you know, the long legs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of those read as some kind of sexual thing. And then of course there's Maria. Uh, So possibly James uh, was cheating on her. I think that he was at least very sexually frustrated and that's why these things are manifesting this way. But uh, I like your theory too, about kind of Maria being the idealized version of her. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the uh, enemy design definitely at least reflects like a certain amount of sexual frustration and even like looking at the way that like pyramid head interacts with other enemies is very like sexual in nature. Like we mentioned, and I think that's also Mm -hmm. supposed to be sort of, I mean like it's played for horror, but I think it's also supposed to be kind of reflective of James as well. Yeah, definitely. So this opens up the question of like, why di- I don't think the game explicitly tells you why James killed uh, Mary and you kind of have this like thing to think about of was it euthanasia because she was terminal uh, getting worse and James loved her or was it like this malicious like I need to put an end to this so I can you know live my life and get mine or something like that. And I want to know where you stand on that. Um, I mean, for all of his faults, I, I'd like to, to 
land in James's favor. Although, I mean, again, he obviously feels guilt about why he did it. Um, so I'm sure there is a certain amount of selfish motivation. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, some of the ending scenes reflect that, um, we can talk about the endings in a little bit, but there, there's a section, at least in a couple of them, where he talks to Mary, essentially, um, and she, he says something to the effect of, like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I killed you. And she said, oh, she says, oh, you know, like, why are you sorry? Like, I asked you to kill me multiple times and he says but uh, but you know you also said you wanted to live i guess you're right like i would like to think that he killed her as a uh, a type of euthanasia and not as some like you know i need to get rid of this ball and chain type thing which would be a very uncharitable like look at james but i think it's possible the way the game plays it out they they kind of let you make these decisions for yourself. I think the way they lay this out is really, really good. I mean, you see him do it on the videotape, but it's a, it's a pretty short scene. You don't see like this big buildup or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you brought up the endings. So let's get into the endings and uh, kind of wrap this up. So there are six endings total. <laughs> Which one did you get? Um, so I actually uh, got an ending that I've never gotten before. I usually get the in in water ending, uh, but this time I played, um, and I got the leave ending, which is just the one where he like takes Laura and leaves Silent Hill, and they presumably okay. live happily. That's good. And you, I think, do you remember what you had to do to get that ending? Um. Not specifically, because actually, it's funny, like, going into this playthrough, I was trying to get the Maria ending, because I I actually, like, I kind of have a soft spot for Maria, and I kind of feel bad for her, at, at the end of the game at least, because I feel like the game does a certain amount of laying track for, like, Maria either, st- like, starting out being sort of amnesiac and then kind of coming to the realization that she's not a real person or maybe not as real a person as other people. So I wanted to like go for that ending and I ended up getting this one. So, okay. Gotcha. In the, I think in the Maria ending, if I'm remembering right, cause I watched all these on YouTube after I got my ending, I think in the Maria ending, um, Maria starts coughing too, like she's sick also, um, which kind of like throws this all into question again. Yeah, and there's actually I I I, I don't know. There's a there's a part in that ending too where, um, and maybe this is just me reading context into it, but like right after she starts coughing, James says something like you know, we have to do something about that cough, which given the context of like how Mary ended up feels kind of sinister. Yeah, it does. You're right. Uh, <laughs> I guess maybe it depends on like the tone of his voice or like the music playing in the background. I can totally see that being like a, you know, a serial killers tagline there at the end. Right. Um, I got the in water ending, which you, 
which you brought up. And in this ending, James atones for what he did, uh, maybe kind of makes peace with it. He goes up and picks up Mary's body um, at the end of the game, and you don't see this happen. You just kind of hear it and see, you know, very vague things on the screen. But what I took out of it is he puts her body in the car, drives the car into the lake and kills himself. And am I, am I, am I on track here with that reading of it? Yeah, I think, I think that's the the correct interpretation because if, if I remember correctly, you, on the screen, you just see like a CG render of being underwater. But like you say, you hear the yeah. the car drive off and then like splash. And you get that, that screen of like being underwater and there's bubbles rising from the bottom to the top. And mm-hmm. I thought that this uh, ending was really, I mean, it's sad, of course, but I thought it was really beautiful because the the letter from Mary at the very beginning of the game Uh, She reads that letter again, but then it continues for a long time. And with incredible voice acting in this, uh, she basically apologizes to James for her outbursts when she was sick. Um, She kind of begs him to go on living uh, and live the best life that he can. But while this is playing, the bubbles are rising, you know, like, you know, that's not going to happen. And... What was, I mean, you said you got that ending the first time you played. Do you remember how you felt about it at the time? Um, I mean, I, I think it's a pretty, it, it's fitting, but it's a pretty, like, heartbreaking way to end the game. Especially, I I wonder, like, are we supposed to assume then that, like, James got the whole letter and only read part of it? Or like forgot about the rest of it or that the second half of the letter was not available to him until he proved that he deserves to see it or something like Mm. that. That's kind of how I thought about it. Cause you know, everything in silent Hill is, uh, you know, possibly not real. So who even knows if that letter he got was real in the first place. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I'm kind of with you. This is a, a super, heartbreaking ending but i mean i personally i love endings like this if the story deserves it like i talked about soma earlier soma has an ending that's like this um i'm 100 percent down for an ending like this if it fits what's happened in the story and i thought this one did i thought it was very good um masahiro ito the um kind of person in charge of the story said that this is his own personal like canonical ending and that's probably why it's the one that's easiest to get. You don't have to do anything, you know, you don't have to go out of your way to do things to get this ending. I just kind of played naturally, and this is what I got. Yeah, I remember I was looking at, uh, after I beat it this last time, I was looking uh, at, because there are com- some kind of weird, uh, you might say, like, granular ways that you can affect your ending. Um, and, like the way that you get this ending is by taking actions that seem dangerous or might seem like James is suicidal. So like examining the (laughs) knife that Angela gives you, uh, staying at low or medium health throughout the game, not healing or keeping your health up, 
uh, actively engaging mm-hmm. enemies a lot, which is funny because kind of like you said, I mean, like that's, that's how you play a survival horror game, right? Like you're careful about your healing items. You look at all the items that you have, like that's just the normal way of things. Yeah. And the, I remember reading the, like kind of the, the steps you have to take to get the, I forget which one it is, but there's one ending where in order to get it, you have to check the photograph of Mary, like examine it in your inventory from time to time throughout the game. That's one of the major requirements. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know how I feel about endings like this where like, I don't know why as a player you would be doing that. You, you examine it one time at the beginning of the game, nothing really happens and I don't know why you would pull out that picture and look at it throughout the game um, the way yeah. the ending demands. The Maria ending is kind of like that too, where it asks you to do very specific things that are kind of annoying. You're supposed to like check back on her room multiple times when she's in the hospital, even though she only has two different lines of dialogue. Uh, like you're supposed to make sure that, when you're escorting her around the town, you're never too far from her. Uh, you can't like bump into her. <laughs> this is a bunch of like weird esoteric mm. stuff. Yeah, that sounds kind of weird. And it it that one and along with the other one I was talking about, they just don't seem like natural ways to play the game. Like like you you said you got the other ending, the the leave ending did you do anything purposely or did it come naturally so i didn't do anything on purpose to get that ending but i know that a big part of uh getting the in water ending is there are a couple of things that you can do in the lakeside hotel that affect pretty broadly what your ending is so if you view or if you find the tape recorder in the reading room that has a recording of an art, I want to say it's an argument between James and Mary when they were in the hospital and you listen to that. And then if you uh, listen to the whole dialogue between James and Mary, when you're like, I want to say it's after you view the videotape and you're just going through the 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 hotel there's that section where there's like dialogue in the background and if you leave that room it'll just cut out but if you wait to Mm -hmm. listen to the whole thing then it it affects your ending too yeah and that dialogue is much longer than it would take to navigate that hallway so you have to stop and make sure that you listen to the whole thing i remember doing that well any other kind of final thoughts about this before we wrap this up here um, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I think we pretty much covered it. Just one more time, like, this story is excellent, and I think it's told with the proper amount of, like, care and gravity that these subjects should get. Like, this this subject matter is not something that video games go into. And, like, this is this game's 20 years old, I don't think many other games have gone into this stuff. There's, I'm sure there's lots of uh, games on itch.io or something like that that deal with a very specific one. But for a game by a major like Japanese company to tell its whole story based on this kind of stuff is pretty rare, I think. And 
um, I'm really glad I played it and got to experience this story. Yeah, I agree. There's there's really not a whole lot else out there like that. Um, and and kind of like we we were talking about that, just the like there are mature themes that are talked about in games, and there are certainly you know more so now probably than there used to be but i i think it it's really impressive the the level of maturity that these subjects are handled and and talked about by characters in the games and the and the way that they're represented at least from my perspective feels like an accurate way of representing them Totally agree. And like, just quick question, do the other Silent Hill games that you've played go into stuff like this? Not really. Uh, so, so one and three are, are pretty like Silent Hill lore heavy. One, you know, establishes the, the story essentially. And then three is like a direct sequel to one. Uh, so it deals more with the story of the town um four does kind of uh but it's also not as good of a game so <laughs> and then <Okay>. generally speaking <laughs> uh a fan fan opinion is that after four everything is pretty much not worth playing which i generally agree with okay fair enough well even if they only hit it out of the ballpark with this kind of stuff once, um, once is enough that I think that this is really a, like I said earlier, a game that everyone should play. So let's wrap this up. This is uh, we've gone over two hours talking about Silent Hill 2, which <laughs> is awesome. So James, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Good conversation. And, uh, Good to have you on the show also because your experience playing and like things that you see and even the endings you got are different from mine. And so it's good to have it's first of all, it's good that this game allows for that and gives people different experiences like that, but also uh, just to have uh, your side of it on here was really good. So again, thanks for coming on. Is there any social media or any projects that you have or anything that you want people to know about? Uh, I am generally not active on social media. I do have a YouTube channel that puts out videos sometimes uh, when I have the time to make them. That's uh, back on my BS. Um, I do not have enough subscribers to have a unique YouTube link. So I, I'm, I'm sure if you just Google or, or look up back on my BS on, uh, on YouTube, you may be able to stumble across it, but yeah, I, you know, do video game related content over there, but that's about it. Okay, cool. Well, I'll throw a, a link in the episode description so people can check that out. Nice. So again, thanks so much uh, for joining everyone who's listening. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed Silent Hill 2 as much as uh, both of us did. Very clear that we're both super, super high on this game. One more time, if you would like to support this show, the best thing you can do is to subscribe and leave a rating and review if you can. And to get on the social media pages, again, links in the episode description description. 
uh, so you don't have to remember how to spell everything. Just click those links. It's easy. It's 2021. We know what we're doing. And the best thing you can do, again, spread the word. Tell people about a new gaming podcast. I hope you enjoy the show enough to recommend it to other people. So one more time, my name has been Dave Jackson. James, thanks for joining. It's been a blast.